Father, we are beyond happy that your ear is open to our cry. Not because we deserve it, but because there was a deserving other. This once for all offering of our Lord Jesus, who's made it possible for us to to approach the throne of grace. And so that we do that boldly tonight. We thank you that you've allowed the Abwaos to arrive safely, complete almost a week here. We pray for Satish. As we know, he leaves Hyderabad on Tuesday in just two days and pray that you'd be preparing him for this first flight of his life and that he not be fearful, but remember your common exhortation to do not fear. And we pray that you would help us receive this brother for whom English is a second language, uh, that we would love him well, that we would... Uh, greet him and serve him and Eric and Jadida and their family in the, the days to come. We tonight too want to particularly lift up Tak away and his wife Lana, as well as John and, and Beth Anna. For these, we pray for your mercy as um, they undergo treatment for cancer, and we pray that you might be pleased to extend their life. Uh, if they might be upon on the sacrifice and service of their faith, many might come to faith and grow in faith. We pray too for Mr. Furson Sr. up in Indiana uh, with the loss of his wife. And we pray for the Fursons as they travel up uh, tomorrow that you might grant them safety. And I pray that they might be able to bring um, comfort from your word Uh, and that you would give them wisdom in the way they do that as they um, uh, pray with and console Mr. First. And we pray for this, and we ask for grace for them. Thank you now for the word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us and giving us the scriptures that we might be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. That abiding in your Son, the Lord Jesus, we might be fruit-bearing, bearing much fruit, even enduring your pruning that we might bear more fruit. So we pray tonight, help us as we hear your word. We pray for your Spirit's work in our lives. We pray that we might see Christ, and we ask this in his name, amen. Turn with me to Exodus 40. This will be the last time in this series uh, that we'll be here. I think we've been in this series somewhere around 19 months. Um, I want to remind you, looking ahead to, uh, you know, we've just finished Hebrews 9 in Pastor Jamie's series, but I'll begin next Sunday morning a four-week series from Romans 8 on the mortification of sin, the necessity, the means the nature, and the reward of mortifying sin. John Owen will be our friend, but our main text will be Romans 8, okay? So, one more time in the book of Exodus, chapter 40. And kids, I'm going to ask you to look uh, and count the number of times that you hear a phrase like this. 
according to all that the Lord commanded him. So I want to see, that begins at verse 16, but I want to see how many times you hear a phrase like that. So listen up and come to me after the service if you feel like you got it right, all right? Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. And I want to pause right there just for a moment and remind you that the material for every item, including the anointing oil, is listed initially in Exodus 25, where there's this call for the sons of Israel to bring voluntarily, as the Lord moves them, all the material that would be needed for the tabernacle. I continue, verse 11. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priests. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. There's your first time, kids, okay. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. And I want to pause again. You read that Moses is doing this and it says he's doing it as the Lord commanded him. I don't think you should envision that 603,000 Hebrew men sat and watched while Moses did all this work. The idea is that under the direction and oversight of Moses, they did it. That's the point, all right? Now, where was I? Which verse? Real quick. Someone help me. Thank you. Verse 20. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting 
on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the, of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and he put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, And when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the court, of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, kids, how many times did you hear that phrase? Anyone have a number? You got it. Eight's right. Good. If you were seven or you were nine, we'll give you a little margin. That's okay. Eight's the number. We'll get to the significance of that later. But tonight we come to the end of the book of Exodus. When we're done tonight, you could say we will be two-fifths of the way, 40% of the way through the Pentateuch, or what we call the books of Moses or the books of the law. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and Exodus means departure. And in it, we've studied Yahweh's rescue of Israel. It's a pretty easy outline, right? The first 12 chapters, God rescues Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh. In fact, that's the prologue to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, that summary, so that that law is given by not just anybody, but by a gracious Redeemer. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I'm the one who's rescued you. Now here is the way, walk in it. But chapters 1 through 12, God rescues Israel. He redeems them from Egypt and Pharaoh. Chapters 12 through 19 is that first year of their wanderings in the wilderness before coming to the foot of Sinai. And then in chapters 19 through 24, if we consider 19, Sinai, post-Sinai, Sinai and post-Sinai, 
The law is given there in the context of covenantal commitment. And then finally, we come to the section that we're in tonight, Exodus 40, part of 25 through 40, where the covenant is elaborated with a focus on sacrifices. Alec Matier, however you say his name, says that's what you notice here in Exodus 25 through 40 is covenant elaboration with a focus on the sacrifices. When we come to the book of Deuteronomy, it will be covenant elaboration with a focus on obedience. In fact, we saw that this morning in our The Discipline of Grace class um, in Jerry Bridges' book. And so what we see here is that the sacrificial and priestly system God revealed to his people, Moses, is laid out here. So the covenant is elaborated through this theme of sacrifice. It will be elaborated, as I've mentioned, through this theme of obedience in many months to come when we get to Deuteronomy. So from Exodus 25 through 40, basically 40% of the book, there's this detailed emphasis on the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle, its furnishings, the court, and the holy garments in consecration of the priesthood of Aaron and his sons. Some of you might have been wondering why I keep saying we'll get to this later, and that is because there's this organic unity and development in the, in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deut- Deuteronomy, where themes that are developed, you can keep building on them, and you realize you'll have a chance later to speak to them. You'll see that more as we get to the book of Leviticus and holiness, in particular, the, the whole concept of atonement and sacrificial offerings is delineated. But there's much to learn and apply tonight, even in this final chapter. So here's our outline. I'd, I'd rather you just see the first 15 verses. If you're making notes, I would say call the first 15 verses instructions. Instructions. All right? Within that, in the first eight verses, if you'll notice, you have the tabernacle, the instructions for erecting the tabernacle placing its furnishings, and setting up the court, all right? And then in verses 9 through 15, you'll see the tabernacle and its furnishings anointed, and that's expanded further with Aaron and his sons in their role as priests, and you see that they're not, that anointing is that final step of consecration. They are washed, they are clothed, and then they are anointed, all right? And then after verses 1 through 15, if you'll take 16 through 33, call this execution. In fact, if you just took it at face value and it says, and Moses did all this and he did this and he did that, you would literally think that this was a one-man installation wrecking crew, that in one day, all these materials Moses put together, but of course we know he did that, no doubt, with a team. And you'll notice that the flow 
of this execution is from the interior to the exterior. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. And then finally, there's the covering and filling of the tabernacle in verses 34 through 38. 1 through 15, instructions. 16 through 33, execution. And then 34 through 38, the covering and filling of the tabernacle. In those final four verses, final five verses, I want us to see. They're an important postscript for how the cloud covered the tabernacle. That first word in Exodus 13 about the pillar of cloud and, uh, and, and, the, and the fire. Turn there just for a moment. You'll see. All right? Themes are developed throughout this book. You're in Exodus 13, you see... This word, it says, and the Lord went before them. Chapter 13, verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. It said the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. I think it's very important that you understand we're sitting here about 1445, 1446, the people are uh, let go. Pharaoh lets them go after the pressure of 10 plagues. Now we're a year later. They're one year into a 40-year wilderness wandering. But that promised pillar of cloud, that promised pillar of fire have not failed to accompany Israel. So just looking at these briefly and then a couple of applications Number one, as we think of instructions for erecting the tabernacle, placing the furnishings and setting up the court, I'd like you to focus with me on verses one through eight. Imagine this, everything was made. No more trips to Lowe's, Home Depot, or Ace Hardware. All the parts and pieces of the tabernacle, its furnishings, the gates, the garments for the priests were there, no doubt organized. And that was the message from last Sunday morning. In fact, I'll read this. Exodus 39, mentioned three times, or describe how the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And in a sense, as the people did that, as they built and assembled and fabricated and sewn all these elements, and that was noted at the end of 39, and Moses eight times the word is that according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. This is a high water mark, and we need to acknowledge this, that stands between Exodus 32 and the great golden calf debacle, the idolatry, and Numbers 14 when the people rebel. And I think we need to understand that. And just even seeing this ought to be instructive for us as Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement we might have hope. Note this high water mark of Israel and Moses' obedience and conformity to the Lord's 
word. All right? But now, under the direction of Bezalel and Oholiab, they complete the work. And they did it per the Lord's commanded instructions. I want you to see the timing of this. It was the first day of the first month of the year following their rescue from Egypt. I want you to notice the scope. Everything was included inside out. You see this, right? The very core there. He said, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And they're not starting at the holy place, but in the most holy place. Behind what, in the second section, behind the second curtain per Hebrews 9, he says, you're to put the ark of the testimony, you're to screen it with the veil. So then on the east side of that veil that screens the ark with the mercy seat on top, he says, you're to bring in the table. And kids, we'll learn more about this later, but you just need to know there were two piles of six loaves each on that table, okay? Two piles of six loaves each on the north side of that first section. And opposite it, there was this lampstand with lamps. And then he says in verse 5, you're to put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Now, we know that when you take Hebrews 9, the most plain reading of Hebrews 9 is that the golden altar of incense is actually behind the second curtain in the most holy place. And that appears on the surface to contradict the instructions here. I think Pastor Jamie's argued that perhaps maybe once a year on the Day of Atonement, that that golden altar of incense was moved. It's hard to make sense of it. Maybe we'll get more, we'll see more of this in the book of Leviticus. My sense is that normally, based on verse 5, that verse 5, the location at the moment that he's writing this is the first section behind the first, uh, as you enter into the holy place. You're not yet through the curtain into the most holy place. So you have the golden altar of incense. Then you have the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And then on the outside, he mentions the burnt offering. You would think that's next, but actually it's the bronze altar that's between the the bronze altar, or the bronze, the basin is between the screen or the, the gate into the tabernacle This basin with water in it, opposite, you'll see it up here. Do we have our pictures tonight? We may not. That's okay. We have in weeks past. If you can get it up, great. Yep. So you see closer to this east entrance, the big bronze altar, and then the bronze basin with water. All right? And you see there's very explicit instructions here. All right, and then he says, you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. There you have the instructions for erecting the tabernacle, placing its furnishings, and setting up the court. Now, for the moment, ponder the importance of worship that since chapter 25, culminating in these words, everything has been building up to this moment 
to, play, to create a dwelling place according to Exodus 25 where God says to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. It all culminates right here. Second, I want us to see the anointing of the tabernacle and the furnishings. And I want you to see this in two parts. First, verses 9 and 11. So what we're doing now in verses 9 through 15 is moving from the erecting assembling an assembly and placing to this new concern. And that new concern is anointing, washing, and consecration. And even in Exodus 25, you'll, you'll read the language of bringing them the spices, right? Spices, verse 6, chapter 25, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. First, verses 9 through 11. There's the consecration of the tabernacle and its furnishings. And whether we speak of anointing as a part of a process of consecration or the two terms of equivalence, what matters here is that we see here in Exodus 40 this emphasis on holiness and the need to be set apart for the purpose of holiness. Indeed, that's the very meaning of sanctifying something or making it holy. Some of you know about my coffee cup called Chip. It's my favorite coffee cup. And if you come to my house for the first time and you have coffee, I've kind of set that apart for first-time gifts to let you drink from because it's my favorite. I'm giving you the best I have. But when you read this word consecrate, I want to give you a sense. So I want you to think about, to distinguish something for a moment. When you think of holiness, it's, and it's to become holy, it's the idea of being set apart. But when you read this word consecrate right here, to consecrate it, verse 9, and consecrate it, verse 11, and consecrate him, verse 13, this word, this Hebrew word is strengthened. It's intensified. It's to make something holy. It's not simply to be holy, but it's to make it such. It's like when someone's your friend and you kind of do this and you say, we're BFFs. You're not just friends. It's a strengthened sense. This is what's being spoken of here when we speak of consecrating. And so the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle, all of it were to be anointed with anointing oil and thus consecrated for this distinct and holy purpose. This was unique, not commonplace. This is what the anointing oil was to be used for. There's warnings in earlier chapters about misusing the anointing oil for common or domestic use. I want you to see that in verses 9 and 10, that the Lord required all the tabernacle and the furnishings be anointed, but anointed only. Note that. The tabernacle and its furnishings were to be anointed, but anointed only. Nothing was to be left out. And you see this repeated three times. Anoint, consecrate. In verses 9 through 11, anoint, 
consecrate, and then 12 through 15, anoint, consecrate. consecrate. But look at the consecration of Aaron and his sons in verses 12 through 15. It's expanded. We have a shift from the tabernacle and the furnishings to Aaron and his sons. The priests in the line of Levi for God's method is people. And what you'll notice in these verses, if you look at 12 through 15, you'll notice a few things. First, the priests were prepared to enter an anointed and consecrated place. They were prepared to enter an anointed and consecrated place. We spoke of this yesterday, Friday night and Saturday, in our membership immersion class, that we believe in a regenerate membership at Grace Baptist Church, a regenerate and baptized membership. And so that before you take communion, we, we want the evidence that you're not only regenerate, that, that you have the marks of conversion, but that you've been baptized first. But we acknowledge here, and so in that sense, as not as priests, but as pastors, when we come to minister, we come to preach the word and pray and lead and encourage here, there is a sense that we're coming to a people that are set apart. What else does church mean, ecclesia, but the called out ones? But second, unlike the tabernacle and its furnishings, there was more required of the priest. Look at this. Before anointing, there was the requirement for washing. You shall wash them with water. There was this requirement for the removal of uncleanness. Then there were the holy garments. He says, and put on Aaron the holy garments. But only after washing, only after being clothed in the holy garments, were Aaron and his sons anointed. And what's the principle? Here it is. Kids, think about this. I want you to remember, mom and dads, test your kids on this. No God, no holiness. Or no, no holiness, no God, as in N-O. No holiness, no God. No holiness, K-N-O-W. No God, K-N-O-W. No, nothing and no one unclean may remain in his presence. That's why it makes sense in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, oh, you're worshiping. You're ready to bring your offering. And you remember that someone else has an issue with you. Rather than be ambivalent or uncaring about that, what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, get up, leave your gift there at the altar, go, be reconciled with your brother, then come back and complete that act, that offering of worship, all right? No holiness, N-O, no God. No holiness, K-N-O-W, no God, K-N-O-W, So you remember Exodus 25 and verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. There's a third thing that I want us to see from verses 12 through 15, and that is that the purpose of the anointing, thus the consecration 
of the priests was that they might serve Yahweh as priests. They might serve Yahweh as priests. And that phrase is repeated twice. Look at this in verse 13 of Aaron. Verse 13, that he may serve me as priest. That's the end of this anointing, this washing, this consecration. And then in verse 15 of his sons, that they may serve me as priests. And I think I'd like to apply this just for a moment. Never think of Grace Baptist Church as a boutique, like a mall, a boutique of religious services where you can get your fix. We are called in preaching the word, your elders in preaching the word faithfully and opening the scriptures, not to entertain you, but to build you up in that most holy faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is not entertainment. This is life and death, serious but joyful work in Christ. Third, I want us to see in the execution within the tabernacle erected in the interior furnishings place. All right, I want you to see this is now the execution from verses 16 through 28. The tabernacle was erected and covered. The testimony was placed in the ark with the mercy seat on top. We know from Hebrews 9 that there was the two tablets of stone and Aaron's rod that budded, right? What else? Manna. There was bread, right? There was bread. There's Aaron's rod that budded in the two tablets of stone, those three things in, in the ark of the testimony. But the veil of the screen was then set up, and it screened off the ark from the holy place. And then next, Moses placed the table on the north side of the holy place opposite the golden lampstand. So within this room, you have bread, you have light, you have fragrant aroma. All these things that point to our Lord Jesus as the bread of life, the light of the world that destroys darkness and fills it up with his light. And the one that Paul speaks of as he writes to the Corinthians that about this fragrant aroma of Christ that it might go every place to the praise of his glory. You can read about that, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll, we, we'll see more in Leviticus 24 about those two piles of six loaves, the bread of the presence or the show bread. We'll see that in coming months. See also the golden altar there in verse 26. I've already spoken to it. I think for the most part it was in the holy place, not the most holy place. And we'll read as we get in the book of Leviticus, it's expanded the treatment of how each of these was used in the worship of Yahweh. And there's one more thing I'd be remiss to point out in this section, and I want you to see it in case you didn't see this phrase. I think some of you got, the kids got that eight times we saw a phrase, according to all that the Lord commanded, so he did. But there's a twice repeated phrase in these verses, and that is in verse 23, you see, 
that Moses arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And look at this in verse 25. Speaking of the golden lampstand, it said, he set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. A reminder that we as Christians must live all of life Korem Deo, before the face of God. As Paul quoted Epimenides of Crete in Acts 17, 28 at Mars Hill, he said it's of God, he said, in him we live, we live and move and have our being. And the application question for us tonight is this. We were thinking about this morning in Sunday school class, in, in our, the discipline of grace class. Are you on kind of an autopilot or cruise control or are you racing? Are you with Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, running the race of the Christian life in such a way, with such a purpose, with such a singularity, simplifying your life, streamlining things, removing entanglements so that you may win the prize? Can you say with Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can you say with Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, that whatever things previously he boasted on is like human excrement to him now. And so the only thing that matters is this, that I, he says, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Is that you? Are you living that way, Quorum Deo? Finally, in verses 29 through 33, we see the tabernacle erected, the furnishings set in place. We come to the exterior, these exterior furnishings, there's just to the bronze altar and the bronze basin and those initial offerings. And I want to encourage you, don't worry, when you read there, in verse 29 of the burnt offering and the grain offering, we'll treat this more in months to come in the book of Leviticus, which we'll do in very broad brush, in a very broad brush fashion. But Aaron and his sons had to wash their hands and their feet prior to entering the tent of meeting or coming near the altar to minister or burn a food offering on it. The clear risk was death. Exodus 40, 32 is simply the expression of their obedience to the commandment that's found in Exodus 30 and verse 20. Nothing more, nothing less. You see in verses 34 through 38, you understand now that the tent of meeting with all its furnishings in the courtyard perimeter is complete, is constructed. And at its completion, we're told, just like Israel was promised in Exodus 13, 21, we're told that this pillar of cloud covered that tent of meeting, but then the glory, another way of thinking of it, the very heaviness of God, glory filled the tabernacle such that Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting. He says, because we read verse 35, the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Only when that, ta- that cloud was taken up could the people set out. But if it wasn't taken up route, they remained where they were in these 40 years of wilderness wandering. We read until the day that it was taken up, okay? And this was done, we read, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The point was God was only moving Israel by the movement of this pillar of this cloud. They weren't to encamp there. It was the, the pillar of cloud moving that there was their signal that they were to move on. And we'll see a contrast to this in a moment. I want to make three applications. I know it's six o'clock. But three applications if you're taking notes. And I'm going to give you the, the big points. Number one, holiness is a necessity. It's not an option. Holiness is a necessity, not an option. Number two, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. And number three, God dwells not, he dwells in his people, not just among them. And there's a difference. There's a difference. Okay? Holiness is a necessity, not an option. God is holy. His people must be holy. We'll see more of that in the book of Leviticus where that's such a significant theme. And so holiness, God is holy. His people must be holy. God is holiness. Holiness must characterize his worship. God is holy. Those that minister as his priests must also be holy. And praise God, brothers and sisters. Praise God from 1 Peter 4. You know what you are. Are you a Christian? You're part of a royal priesthood. He could not love you more. He will not love you less. He's fashioning you and me into a holy people. So holiness is not just one option among many. It's not like walking into Starbucks and staring up there at that board or worse, Panera Bread and wondering, how do I order from this board? So maybe some of you know what I mean. Holiness is not just one option among many. It's integral to who God is, to what his covenant people are and the life to which he has predestined them. When you read in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What he is saying is that God, Paul is saying, God, if you're his, has predestined you to a holiness that if you're honest on some days, you're really wondering if you'll ever get there. The good news is, you will. The bad news is, not today. It's going to take just a little bit longer. No holiness, N-O, holiness, no God. No holiness, K-N-O-W, no God. Secondly, sacrifices at the heart of worship. One of the last things that Moses does in this narrative is to wash, to clothe, and anoint Aaron and his sons. Why? It's a very simple expression that they may serve me as priests. What's the work of priests? It's simple. Sacrifice. The receiving and giving of, this, of acceptable sacrifices as an integral part of worship. Kids, you know, listen, some of you, just for a moment. Fundamentally, we do receive when we come and we gather for corporate worship. 
but really we're not to come empty-handed. We're to come to give, to give of our hearts, to bow the knee to, to our King, to our Lord Jesus in humble submission. So the work of priests, simple, sacrifice. No sacrifice, no access to God. No access to God, no real worship. In the months ahead, this will become apparent as the covenant is elaborated around this theme of sacrifice and the sacrificial system. And have no doubt, don't miss it. Don't let all those pages of Scripture, don't let them be an impediment to you understanding that as you turn each page and you go to the right and you keep working to that New Testament, the flowers opening up, you know who's coming into view. It's Jesus. Every bit of it points to him. It all culminates in him. He's the ultimate and final word, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, by which God has spoken to us in these last days. A final point and we'll be done. God dwells in his people, not just among them. Do you know how good it is to finally see a friend, you haven't seen them in a long time, and they come and they sit down, and there are no limits on just being able to talk and be with them. They're in your house, they're in your dwelling, and you have fellowship, you have friendship, maybe a shared meal. There's remembrances, there's tears, there's laughter, there's memory lane, especially with a Christian, the joy is that's all around the hope of the gospel. Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Did you know that God's plan is to be right here with us, his people? That's not about the construction of this building, but it's about the gathering of this body. It's profound. God's not just around his people. He's in them. He's not just around us. He's in us. It's revolutionary when my life, my thoughts, when your life, your thoughts, and your daily purpose is shaped by the reality of the God who indwells with Christ in you, Paul says in Colossians 1.29, as your hope of glory, as my hope of glory. This is why Paul could say to the Corinthians that they must flee sexual immorality because it was entirely contradictory to their new status, that is a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, 1 Corinthians six nineteen. But it broadens, the scope of that broadens and points to something greater in Ephesians 2, so that it's apparent that God's plan is far more than a single individual. The church, capital C, and churches Paul says in Ephesians 2.22, are being built together into a dwelling of God for the Spirit or by the Spirit. This dwelling in us is God's plan for us corporately. What are the implications of this? They are staggering. It's why the person at the altar that remembers someone has something against them, even with the potential embarrassment, leaves it, gets up, and is reconciled. It's why the person that's so tempted to judge 
in, in Matthew 7 who forgets that there's this huge log sticking out of their eye suddenly realizes that they'd be a lot better served helping the person with a speck in their eye 100 meters away by removing that log and then going to them. We may be then committed to love in love to one another, to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How? At all times. How? In every way. How? With all humility, gentleness, and patience. How? In every situation. How? With all the saints. How? Until he comes. Why? For his own glory. Here's an irony. Moses could not enter the tabernacle when God's glory filled it. But I propose that when our church is so evidently filled with the marks of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and the aroma of the Spirit of Christ oozing out of the four walls of this place, will experience a phenomenon. Every Moses, every Miriam, every man or woman, every boy or girl will be irresistibly attracted to our body and our fellowship as they will be made willing by that in the day of his salvation. May God make us that type of church.